Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, a new show for and about people who think big. I'm Vas Christodoulou. On this week's podcast, we meet a maverick who's made it his mission to fight back against the technocrats running our businesses and governments, putting the insights of psychology and human creativity to work in improving society. Rory Sutherland is a legend in the worlds of advertising and behavioural economics. He's vice chairman of the agency Ogilvy One, a columnist for The Spectator, and the author of Alchemy, a new book about how to innovate by appealing to the unconscious parts of ourselves. Ahead of his talk at How To Academy, he sat down with LBC presenter Matthew Stadlin to explore why completely irrational ideas, brands and products often triumph while rational ones fall flat, and what those lessons from business can teach us about fighting climate change and improving human happiness. Rory, there is an argument to be made that technocrats rule our world, and yet in your book, you suggest counterintuitively that in fact, as an advertising man, you want to tap into our unconscious and bypass reason and bypass the temptation of big data. Yes, what I'm saying there is there's still scope in life, not everywhere in life, not in the design of aircraft, for example, or the building of bridges, but in the design of anything where some sort of human emotion or some sort of human behaviour forms part of the end goal, uh, you can't be wholly and conventionally logical. Now, the interesting thing about technocrats is that technocrats in some ways may not be born, they may just be created through living in a very technocratic environment. So if you work in a any kind of institutional environment, whether it be government or business, you gain your status and prestige, and to some extent you enjoy your influence by the ability to win arguments rather than the ability to win. An entrepreneur has a strange advantage over a technocrat in that If you're an entrepreneur, a Steve Jobs or a Dyson or whatever, you actually don't have to explain yourself to anybody. If you have some huge hunch and you're willing to bet on it, that, you know, uh, a Korean restaurant is going to do particularly well if you open it on this particular section of street, you can actually invest on that based on your own hunch and instinct without having to present PowerPoint decks to committees, without having to do a a massive cost-benefit analysis. And that, in a strange way, gives you an advantage because your aim is actually to be successful. It's not to win an argument. And actually, the tools we might deploy, I think, are rather different because it's much easier in any kind of bureaucratic setting to get fired for being illogical than it is for being unimaginative. And so the one advantage that someone can enjoy through escaping from a technocratic environment is essentially to say, look, this idea I have doesn't appear to make much sense. Nonetheless, my instincts tell me it will be hugely successful, for whatever reason. And you can then do things which no bureaucratic organisation can do, simply because no one could ever create the argument for it. And the example I give in my book, quite a lot throughout, is Red Bull. Okay. So no one sitting down trying to compete with Coca-Cola would have said, OK, let's produce a drink that's more expensive than Coke, comes in a tiny can and tastes kind of horrible. 
if you tried to get that through a committee in any kind of drinks organisation or business, effectively you would have been thrown out of the room pretty quickly. Moreover, had you done it and failed, you'd be dead. If you'd produced a nice tasting drink that cost less than Coke and came in a really big can and you'd failed, because what you'd done had been reasonable and logical, you would have probably kept your job and you would have attributed blame somewhere else or merely said you're unlucky. If you do something that's counterintuitive, the great advantage you enjoy is you're actually occupying pretty much virgin territory because by doing something slightly weird and eccentric, you're going where nobody else goes. It's very, very risky to do in any institutional setting. However, in a commercial or capitalistic setting, if you luck out, and you're right, and you produce a weird-tasting drink that costs a fortune in a tiny can and discover that that's what people want, even though no-one would have told you they wanted it, then the gains are absolutely spectacular. So you're talking about the sorts of qualities that a good creative might need, but how do we actually hit the bullseye? That's just one example you've given, and it could have gone horribly wrong. How do we bypass the data, bypass reason, and tap into our unconscious? I'll give you an interesting case there, which is, one, you might be able to find psychological justification for what you're recommending, although you won't find logical justification for it. You simply have to accept that, in the case of Red Bull, if you market a product as being medicinal, psychoactive, psychotropic, There's a kind of placebo rule in the human brain that seems to suggest that for something to be plausible as a medicine or as a psychoactive substance, it has to taste a bit weird. In the same way that health food has to taste a bit shit, because otherwise we wouldn't believe it. And good food has to be quite expensive. And good food has to be expensive. I mean, interestingly, Diet Coke is deliberately made slightly less sweet tasting than ordinary Coke, so people believe it's a diet drink. So there's kind of yin and yang thing going on, which is people believe in the trade-off. If it tastes exactly the same, they don't really believe it is a dry drink. If you just make it a little bit more bitter, they do. And I think there is even an advert that says something like reassuringly expensive. Yep, that was Stella Artois, and it was their end line for many, many years. And uh, there are many, many products where, by the way, you have to be expensive. So conventional economics is completely blind to all this. Uh, The fact that actually, you know, sometimes the opposite of what is true in economics is true in real life that uh, you can put the price of something up and demand goes up. That's by no means that rare. We were having a discussion on Twitter this morning that actually, if you're clever about it, having a waiting list for a product can, of course, be turned into an advantage. Normally, you would have said that a product which you had to wait four weeks for delivery was a catastrophe. Well, it's rather like queuing up outside a club, isn't it? Exactly. No good nightclub ever fails to have a queue outside it. And so... The interesting thing is the same thing can mean one thing or the opposite, depending on how it's framed or what our expectation is. In the same way that Nespresso coffee, which is really pretty expensive compared to Nescafe, the reason we're happy to pay 39p for a pot of Nespresso is because our frame of reference isn't Nescafe. Our frame of reference is Starbucks. No one would pay £40 for a jar of coffee in a shop, which is more or less what you're paying when you buy Nespresso. But we don't know, to be honest, what a single Nescafe costs. So when we pop that 39p pod in the machine, we're not thinking, gosh, this is a lot more expensive than Nescafe. We're thinking, well, 39p would cost me £2.20 at Starbucks. This machine is saving me a fortune. So talk to me about stripy toothpaste and why, why is it, according to you anyway, that we seem to prefer it? Stripy toothpaste, when you think about it, is bonkers <laughs> because 
the second you put it in its mouth and it actually starts performing its function, it the stripes up. break down and they mix it all yeah. up. So why bother keeping the stripe separate in the tube? Um, and people have spent a lot of energy, as you say in the book, trying to work out how they do it. They've cut open a and nobody asked tried why. to look for a cross-section, but they don't ask why. That's the strangest thing. Nobody actually said, well, why make it stripy, given that well, as soon as I put it on the brush, pretty much as soon as it comes into contact with my teeth, I'm going to mix it all up anyway. So why keep it separate in the tube? But you've come up with some answers. I think the plausible reason is that a pink toothpaste, as opposed to a red and white striped one, one, it's less intricate, and we have an instinctive human reaction that something that's more complicated is doing a better job. And it also suggests a single function. Or, or dual function, because if you've got a white bit and a red bit, and you're claiming it freshens breath and prevents decay, for example, and the product visibly consists of two colours, it's a much more plausible claim than if you had a pink toothpaste and you tried to make the same claim. And this is important, by the way, in environmental questions, because... If you get people to use concentrates, concentrated washing powder, it's generally good for the environment. Two things unfortunately happen. Either people don't buy it because it looks like bad value for money because it's a small bottle, or they overdose because they compensate for the small volume by putting too much in. Uh, in both cases, you're then obviating the whole environmental purpose of the product, although it does reduce packaging as well. So the clever way to do it in many cases is to create something a bit like Finnish Quantum, where I don't know if you're a dishwasher pervert, I'm a bit of a weird obsessive, but it's a tablet that consists of three or four separate components with a red ball in the middle and then a kind of powder and a kind of gel attached. I love the idea of being a dishwasher pervert. Oh, no, no, no. It's, it's, it's something I don't about. think my wife would associate with me, but I'll ask her later Do you not really stack on. it, though? Well, I do a lot of stacking. You've done a lot of stacking. Well, I have done recently, anyway. Yeah. Yeah. But it's improved my marriage, I think. No, I think it can, it can be counterproductive because women can find it patronising if you start... If they've already stacked a dishwasher and you spend 26 minutes just so you can get in an extra mug, you know, as a kind of game of dishwasher Tetris, I think they can find that annoying. All, so all women, do you mean, Rory? No, my, no my, wife, my wife can get irritating because irritating it, it seems to her mildly patronising as if it's sort of showing off male spatial awareness ability. Which leads me um, to the role of anecdotes in advertising. We can come to back we can to, come that to that later. Uh, absolutely, but on the dishwasher should. point. So if you make the dishwasher tablets particularly intricate, we automatically assume they're doing more per cubic centimetre than if you make the thing very, very simple. And so it actually has an important message for people trying to design environmentally friendly products. Maybe also make them more complicated to use. Araldite, part of the reason we were so fascinated by Araldite was precisely the fact that you had to mix it. And there is an argument, and this goes back to the reassuringly expensive point, that, say, one of our very regular pain relief tablets, take, for example, aspirin, should be priced more expensive. Yeah, I'm probably the only person in Britain who um, complains that you can't get expensive aspirin in. And you can get expensive ibuprofen, that's branded, and you can get heavily branded paracetamol. Aspirin, not so much. In fact, it tends to be a kind of generic for 69p. And my argument is there's a lot of evidence that shows that, particularly in painkilling, the placebo effect's quite powerful. And therefore, first of all, there's an evidence that they'd be better if they were red, because apparently painkillers are more effective in terms of placebo effect if they're coloured red. Uh, they're also more effective if they're branded and they're more effective if they're expensive. So it's a pity in a way that someone, some reputable kind of pharma brand, 
doesn't produce quite expensive soluble aspirin in elaborate packaging with a £2.90 price point, simply because it would not only make them a lot of money, it would be more effective as a painkiller. And you say this even though you yourself, of course, are not a doctor, though your grandfather was a doctor. My grandfather was a doctor. And he thought of himself as a witch doctor initially, didn't he, before the advent of penicillin. Just explain that. Uh, yeah. Not I mean, entirely a witch no, doctor, no, no, obviously. No, 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 but... no. I, mean, I mean, surgery could work under certain circumstances. Patently, uh, there were extraordinary medical kind of silver bullets uh, in the area such as vaccination. Uh, there's a new book out, actually, by a kind of medical historian and philosopher where he talks about pretty much medical nihilism, where he argues that if you delve pretty deeply, the history of medicine is a mixture of tiny number of real silver bullets, of which antibiotics is probably the greatest one. And um, uh, the important thing there is that um, there are a few breakthrough discoveries where you literally have a kind of order of magnitude effect. You know, in other words, you can do something to an extraordinary degree of eff- efficacy and it works on everybody. But in between those, quite a lot of medical progress, even some in surgery, is pretty debatable when you look at the statistical evidence with a more sceptical eye. But the the other interesting thing is that, as my grandfather said, before antibiotics, to a great extent as a GP, your value was as much shamanistic uh, as it was medical. In other words, you help encourage people to feel they would get better. You encourage them to wrap up warm. You might encourage them to have a medicinal whiskey. And you generally chivvy them along and provide them with white coat reassurance, if you like. And he said that role before antibiotics, because he was a doctor from the 1920s to the 1950s, he said before antibiotics came along, that role probably predominated in terms of the value you had. Given that we've talked about aspirin, let's briefly mention Nurofen and the case in Australia, because you have a bit of sympathy for Nurofen. Yes. So Nurofen was given a hard time by these killjoys at the Australian Competition Committee because they had a, a number of variants of Nurofen, so Nurofen for period pain, Nurofen for migraines, etc., which were chemically identical to basic Nurofen, but priced at a slightly higher price point. Now, the simple truth of the matter is that if you accept that the placebo effect works, which in the case of painkillers, it's more controversial in some other areas, but in the case of painkillers, the placebo effect definitely does work. Um, Providing the, the brain with a narrative of recovery or pain relief seems to be helpful in itself, okay? I'm just accepting all this. I'm not challenging No, 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 no. And um, so... If you actually make a claim about specificity of a drug, it will boost the placebo effect. So Nurofen for period pain, even though it's just some words in ink on the packaging, will be a more effective treatment for period pain than plain Nurofen, even though those two things were chemically identical. And so you would like to have a Nurofen for losing your car keys? Yes, a Nurofen for people whose neighbours like reggae was one of my suggestions. Yeah, they, They should go more specific still and charge an extra premium Uh, according to how niche the complaint might be. That was something I couldn't quite understand from your book. What is your problem with reggae, or is it just very loud reggae when played by neighbours? Reggae, I've no no beef with reggae at all myself. It's not a great um, musical form for your neighbours to like, because if you've got a very high monotonous bass line, um, then what you get is you get none of the nuances. You just get thump, 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 thump. To what extent have we been... I, li- I like reggae because... I mean, I want to make this point. I-, I like it because it's actually elegantly simple. And there's an element to actually... You know, the best solutions, I think, have a kind of elegant simplicity to them. And so I think um, 
uh, you know, one of the things we should look for uh, in looking for these psychological solutions, it's very easy to find them, by the way. All you have to do is say, somewhere in this problem is something that an economist assumes that, that is true, that probably isn't. And when you found the wrong assumption, the second you found the thing you assume is true that you're actually all wrong about, 90% of the time you've solved the problem. To what extent have we been talking about psychologic? And can you sum it up for me in just a couple of sentences? Yeah, the most important thing, work by a few people here, and we ought to remember that um, I'm very optimistic about improving the world through psychology because I think we're running out of road. The very fact that very, very rich people are building rockets, okay, is evidence of the fact that we've kind of run out of challenges in improving the world through physics. So it's very difficult to make a train that goes three times faster than um, uh, a current train. I mean, Musk's attempt with uh, the Hyperloop is an interesting idea, by the way, having a kind of vacuum tube. But that's what you've got to do in order to make, say, ground transportation significantly faster. You've got to do something massive. The good news is, is that we're much more wrong about psychology than we are about physics. And so where I see huge room for improvement is what I call innovation. In other words, rather than looking to Newtonian physics to solve the problem, you look to psychology. Now, so the question I'd ask there was... You can't make a train any faster. How would you make a train journey 10 times more enjoyable? So let's look at Eurostar, for example. Mm. Instead of making it 20 minutes faster, 30 minutes faster, you would populate the Eurostar with... Supermodels. Yeah, both genders, <laughs> male and female supermodels, walk up and down, uh, handing out free Chateau Petrus to all the passengers. And this would work because... Well, it would cost enormously less than the £6 billion they spent making the journey shorter. But not only that, um, people would be even more likely to abandon uh, aircraft for the Eurostar and they'd ask for the trains to be slowed down so you wouldn't need the faster tracks at all. It's rather genius. Well, I mean, Wi-Fi, weirdly, they spent six billion reducing the journey time on the Eurostar ten years before they installed Wi-Fi on the trains. And why do you think, if it's correct that you have, and you've asserted this in the past, that we managed to put a man on the moon before we invented wheels on suitcases. Now, since I made that assertion, it's very interesting because the first wheeled trunk and wheeled suitcase was patented in the 19th century. Uh -huh. Now, this is a very, very interesting question, which is a large amount of innovation. And I, I, I refer quite a lot in the book to video conferencing, which I think is This a is the next big thing, according to Rory Sutherland. Yeah. Um, if we can crack the psychology of video conferencing, it will be one of the most economically significant inventions... Uh, well, of the twenty, effectively of the twentieth century, and potentially ecologically, uh, ecologically it could, it save could be the huge. It could, it could stop the flights. Not, not only saving flights, it can also save unnecessary gratuitous car journeys. I mean, we shouldn't we shouldn't just think of video conferencing as that was used to sell it in when a video conferencing suite cost ten thousand pounds. The way you sold it in was to say, well, you only need to cut three business class returns to New York from your budget, and this video conferencing suite is effectively free. Actually, video conferencing is just as valuable talking to people in Birmingham or Manchester as it is talking to people in Peru. But the reason it isn't adopted is similar to the reason it took 50 or 60 years for the wheeled suitcase to get adopted, which is psychological obstacles, not practical ones, not economic ones. I mean, they could have made a perfectly good wheeled suitcase. Probably in 1880, the cheap availability of porters and servants uh, and the idea that it was low status to carry your own bag might have been an obstacle. Uh, in the case of Travel Pro, which was the company that got what you might call the inline wheeled suitcase off the ground, the interesting thing was the guy who actually invented it was a Boeing pilot himself 
and sold them initially to other flight crew and other pilots. Now, pilots and flight crew are generally the coolest people in an airport. And if you see pilots trailing little two-wheeled cases behind them, you go, well, these people travel, actually, you know, three times a week. They probably know what shit's good for them. And they're achingly cool people being generally ex-military to some extent. So there is now no stigma attached to having the same kind of bag that a pilot has. But if you'd introduced the wheeled suitcase on four wheels, which was actually available earlier, it would become stigmatised to something for the elderly, a bit like those tartan shopping wheelies. And this is presumably why models are used to sell us things, but, isn't yeah, it? Um, to an extent. User imagery is hugely important. I mean, you, you can remember Rothmans as a cigarette brand essentially had someone with either a flight captain's or naval captain's insignia on their sleeve next to a packet of Rothmans close to the gear stick of a typically something like an Aston Martin. Um, and that was their advertising throughout my childhood. And it's pretty potent stuff. And you talk of cigarettes, but you, of course, are, are vaping. Yeah. How important is it for the vaping industry to make it cool? Because to me, cool though you are, Rory, it seems deeply uncool as an activity. Yeah, you'd never do a remake of Brief Encounter, would you, with vapes? <laughs> I have to admit. You know, Casablanca, you can just imagine it. No, it really wouldn't work. Um uh, you might argue the jewels kind of made it cool. You may argue, to be honest, that vapors are actually quite conscious of the fact that it isn't all that cool, but that actually the alternative is far worse. It's worth remembering that people quit smoking not because it killed them, but because it became uncool. A key word in most so, of what so we... Actually, I mean, it's worth, worth remembering this. Among milieu where smoking is still the norm, and there are quite a lot of them dotted around the country, you know, urban areas, typically poorer areas, where smoking's still the norm. Um, those people are very, very difficult to get to quit. It was social pressure more than it was, in a, well, in equal measure, at least, that actually killed it. Because we knew it was fatal in the 1980s, but if there were loads of people at work smoking around you, you felt kind of herd effect, safety and numbers, and you just lit up as well. And advertisers presumably tried to tap into this herd mentality. I mean, I think, again, of toothpaste. We tend to brush our teeth if we are diligent yep. in the mornings and in the evenings. We don't tend to brush them after chocolate pots. No. Um, and, and that's because there is another my, motivation. My, my theory it? is the deep down Darwinian motivation is our fear of bad breath. So that we notionally and officially clean our teeth in order to prevent cavities, break down plaque, prevent decay. The unconscious motivation is more about fear of halitosis. And the reason I'd advance for that, and I've had this effectively um, validated by people in the toothpaste industry, uh, if you think about it, 98% of toothpaste is mint-flavoured. Now, why would that be if it weren't about breath freshness? If we were aware that everyone did regularly brush their teeth after chocolate pots, and not just in the morning uh, if, and evening, if, if then we probably would too. If, restaurants... if, if you went to a, com a country like Japan... Uh, where generally doing weird things is, is quite common. And it was normal for restaurants to hand you a wrapped a toothbrush and a little bit of toothpaste. Rather than just a uh, toothpick. After, uh, rather than a toothpick after your meal. Then you could perfectly well create a norm where people did that, yeah. Now, a very important word that has cropped up is psychology. And there seems to be, I think in your view anyway, an absence, an impressive absence, but a regrettable absence of psychology in politics. Uh, it's absurd, I mean... Uh, that if your most political challenges are behavioural change challenges, I mean, if they're not, what the hell are you doing them for? Most policies are accepted really and judged on emotional grounds rather than rational grounds. 
Evidence of that, by the way, and I know him quite well, the dementia tax, which was the absolute curse of the last general election for Theresa May, it needed a few tweaks, but it was basically a good idea, which said that people who had homes of a certain value could essentially pledge part of the value of their home uh, to cover the cost of care. You could argue that in it was words, progressive, in other words, you? It was It was highly progressive. You could also make a case to the left, by the way, that something similar happens in Denmark with property taxes. So in Denmark, if you retire and you want to stay in your blinged up, not that Danish homes are ever that, well, you know, but you want to stay in your blinged up beachfront location in Copenhagen, what happens is they say, OK, you can either pay the property tax, which is quite high, or you can roll it up into death duties. So that Danes offer people a choice which says you can essentially defer payment of something till after your death so that you can remain in your own home. And it was both progressive in terms of the way the tax was levied. Left-wing people should have approved of it. And it meant the money didn't become entrenched. And it, yeah, Absolutely right. Um, and, and by the way, I mean, it's worth remembering... I say uh, money, but wealth. But it, it's worth remembering, actually, that Adam Smith was, a, was very much in favour of inheritance tax. Um, there have been quite a few economists who've been seen to be on the right who argue that uh, a degree of inheritance tax is generally healthy. But the strange thing was, the second it was called the dementia tax, which was a coinage not by a rival politician, because I investigated this, it was a journalist who just called it the dementia tax. It was dead. It was dead. So why is it then that you think that politicians don't use psychology more than they do? Uh, no, it's not, it's not that they don't themselves. It's because they're enthralled to lawyers and economists. So you mean they don't bring in the hired help as um, the, in the way that sports teams do I now? Mean, Richard Thaler, who's, who won the Nobel Prize for Economics but is a behavioural economist and therefore deeply sceptical about the ability of conventional economics to inform policy interventions, uh, he said that essentially the whole of Washington, and the same is true of Westminster, uh, it's run by uh, lawyers who occasionally seek advice from economists. Anybody else interested in helping out the lawyers need not apply. And the economic viewpoint is an attempt to acquire the confidence of certainty at the price of accuracy. It's as simple as that. It's a totally bogus attempt to model a complex system like an economy as though it were a kind of simple physical framework. And, you know, it's a bold attempt, but it's extraordinarily bad in terms of its ability to um, uh, understand how people really think, decide and act. So I'll give you an example of an interesting experiment here, which is purely a thought experiment. I'm not sure, to be honest, that you can make the guaranteed basic income work. But you the mean the, the universal that, basic income? Yeah, so it's variously called a UBI or, yeah. or occasionally. Andrew Yang, who's, is, who wants to become the next Democratic president of the United States, he is uh, running basically he's on, running that, on that prospectus. Yeah. Now, what's interesting about that, OK, is if you went to right-wing people and talked about tax... And if you went to left-wing people and talked about tax, generally the left-wing people would go, yay, redistribution. And the right-wing people, you'd assume at least, would say, no, I've earned it and it's mine. Okay? The strange thing is that when you design a tax system and a welfare system differently, in particular so that differential rewards for effort are still preserved, weirdly, right-wing people quite like it. So you'd think... Now, this is a very interesting thing, which is, this is one of the most important points, which is that we actually don't know why we feel the way we do about things, and we post-rationalise. 
And the truth in politics may be that actually right-wing people are much less averse to welfare and less averse to wealth redistribution than they think they are, but they instinctively hate it the way it's done in its present form because they think it actually undermines incentives and it undermines what you might call differential rewards for effort. Weirdly, when you frame it as a guaranteed basic income or universal basic income, Nixon quite liked the idea, Milton Friedman liked the idea. My grandfather, who was a doctor in Tradiga in the Welsh Valleys, but a man of pretty robust right-wing views, he thought that's how it should work, that you essentially pay people... Um, I think you would have separate allowance for people who are um, in you know, very special conditions of disability, for example... But it's quite an interesting thought experiment, even though the economics of it probably can't be made to work. Now, one interesting objection to that is, is, is fascinating, which is if you did have a universal basic income, groups of friends would probably gather together, pool their resources, move somewhere where property was very cheap and kind of live in welfare communes. Because actually with enough of you, you could actually run a car and actually have quite a nice house. OK, now that then raises the secondary question, which is, is that OK or not? Now, you might argue in environmental terms, it's fine. I mean, they're making very little impact on the planet. They're surviving. They might produce interesting cultural works or do other things that are worthwhile. They might start a business. That would undoubtedly cause a lot of Daily Mail scandal uh, when people started to do that, essentially pooling their UBI to live in sort of fairly happy communes. But nonetheless, most right-wing people quite like the idea because the basic thing is that everybody gets what you might call what they need and it separates out the need economy from the reward economy. And where does this fit into packaging, is your point, and marketing? Um, um, How you describe something... I'll give you an even more extreme Very briefly, because I need to ask you a very important question. Of course, of course. I think I read somewhere that there isn't a night uh, in the year when Nick Clegg doesn't wake up and basically go if only we called it the graduate tax. So if you'd called student loans a graduate tax, for example, the entire perception of the whole thing would have been different. Because if, you, if you'd framed it in a different way and you'd essentially said you will pay a slight... You could have made it economically identical to the structure of the loan, but you'd effectively framed it as a tax so that the um, what you might call the principal loan amount never became known. And so you didn't feel you were starting life £27,000 in debt. You merely realised that if you did quite well in life, you'd have to pay a bit more tax than the guy who'd who'd made it without going to university. Now, the entire perception of that would have been totally different. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Marquee TV. Marquee TV is an incredible streaming service that is a gateway to arts and culture. With my subscription, I've enjoyed watching some of the Royal Shakespeare Company's most acclaimed productions of recent years including David Tennant in Richard II and Simon Russell Beale in The Tempest. I've seen multiple productions of The Ring Cycle and Thelonious Monk playing in Brussels in 1963. I've watched Alice in Wonderland at the Royal Opera House and Giselle at La Scala. Marquee TV really is the most accessible way into culture I've ever encountered and a treasure trove for any arts lover. You can try it for three months for just 99p. Yep, three months for 99p with the code how to just visit marquee.tv and use the promo code how to to dive into the world of the arts like never before. 
Let's quickly look at a really important part of political branding or a really important example of political branding, and that is new Labour. And that has, of course, caused a huge problem, actually not just for the Labour Party, but for, for politics more generally, because what happens after the word new? Uh, well, it, it's an interesting one because it was probably necessary. I, mean, I think it was necessary branding at the time. Uh, you could always do new again, but you probably have to wait for a lot of people to die and forget the last time it was attempted. But it does pose an interesting question, an interesting problem. How do you rejuvenate after something has already been new? Well, the current policy is you go back to what you might call <laughs> classic Labour. 1970s. Uh, it, I mean, it, it is, I mean, Corbyn is an archetypal case of going back to essentially... I mean, there are always cycles, by the way. This is a very funny thing which someone told me the other day, which is this, this is a man called Jeremy Bullmore, who's now in his 80s. When you bought... Cheddar cheese, for example, when he was younger, it always had the rind on. And eventually somebody charged a bit of a premium for rindless cheddar cheese, which was just cheddar cheese wrapped without any rind. So people thought, seconds, what a marvellous yeah. improvement. Yeah. And then eventually all cheese became rindless. And somebody then had the wizard idea of leaving the rind <laughs> on and calling on. <laughs> it farmhouse cheddar and charging a premium all over again. <laughs> so in some ways, what you've done with Jeremy Corbyn is you've actually done, you've yes. gone full circle and you've put the rind on. And it's about uh, authenticity suddenly, isn't it? It's suddenly about authenticity, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Now, we've mentioned the climate briefly, but no serious conversation I think can take place these days without a, a proper question on that and given that you are someone who can persuade people to do things how can you persuade us to save the planet um maybe 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 it's by not forever going on and on and on and on and on at people to save the planet so i wonder Isn't that a whether out? no um if you look at what if you like had the greatest effect certainly before penicillin in extending human longevity uh and generally improving quality of life before penicillin kicked along, excluding things like vaccination, it was undoubtedly higher standards of hygiene and cleanliness. And the way you got people to do that was not by running ads that said, wash with Pears soap and help prevent a cholera outbreak. What you did is you sold Pears soap or you sold detergent on the fact that if you didn't use it, you'd be unattractive to the opposite sex and die single and alone. And if you look at advertising from the 20s, if you look at advertising from the 19th century, it's very, very heavy in its use of Darwinian psychology. There's a great ad for Listerine, which says, always the bridesmaid, never the bride, written by a female copywriter. So I'm just going to, you know, duck the blame for that one there. But essentially, it was exploiting individual human motivations. As with toothpaste, the byproduct of an individual selfish motivation, I don't want to have bad breath, mint flavour, uh, is a wider social good, healthier teeth. Okay. In the same way, you sold cleanliness really on status and desirability, and the, the oblique benefit was, again, uh, far higher standards of hygiene and, um, uh, and therefore lower risk of disease and infection. So how do you sell saving well, the planet? If you position my purchase of an electric car as kind of something I have to do for the sake of polar bears, by framing it as a sacrifice, you're implicitly suggesting that the car isn't all that good. Okay, so let me take an example in a much more trivial area. If you make dishwasher or washing machine detergents very, very nakedly green, pro-environmental yeah. and green, people automatically assume they're not doing a very good job 
they also use more. Because they must, of they assume there a, must a, be a cost benefit to it. Right? They assume essentially that there's always a trade-off, right? And so you're essentially saying, and actually, if you look, you can actually do this. So if you just mark up a detergent as green and kind to the environment, rather than you know the an identical chemical detergent called bastard. Uh, which is next door, right? <laughs> by by putting lots of flowers on something and making it kind of the environment, people's perception of the cleanliness and fresh-smelling nature of their clothes is that it's it's doing less of a good job. In the same way, all our perception, by the way, is hugely conditioned by context and expectation. That's why when you have your car washed, it's actually a better car. You know, it's a faster, quieter, you know, more comfortable car. It's not just a cleaner car. And so our inst- our instinct for understanding that there's a trade-off the opposite of reassuringly expensive, essentially damages the perception of electric cars, which are actually fucking brilliant, right? I want solar panels because I think they're cool. As soon as someone like John Lewis comes along and says, do you want to buy some solar panels? I'm there, right? Okay. Now, you don't have to mention, if you mention polar bears to me, it's basically saying, look, these panels are a bit shit, but in the interest of some polar bears, you better do it. Why undersell something that's unbelievably brilliant like an electric car, like a Tesla, like a you know, Jaguar I-Pace? Why undersell it? But, but this assumes that there are these collateral advantages, and sometimes there aren't. So how do you get us as an ad man to swallow the bad stuff, to swallow the medicine? Um, an interesting one would be, for example, if you look at... We've got to be very, very careful of this, because there's... A group of te- about 10% of the population can engage in a status game which is called counter signaling, which is deliberately essentially adopting a very modest lifestyle or the accoutrements of a very modest lifestyle as actually as a status marker. So if you're the mayor of London and you cycle to work, it essentially says you're a very, very cool guy, right? Because obviously you could turn up at work in a limousine if you wanted to but you've chosen to cycle and your status actually gains i mean aristocrats used to do this to an extraordinary extent uh, you know addressing like dressing down yeah dressing down um because you can afford to do it because no one's going to think you're upper middle class that well that's certainly there's no risk if you think about it from the point of view of an aristocrat an aristocrat's not frightened of being thought lower middle class or working class because he obviously isn't but he's a bit frightened of being thought upper middle class so the way you do it is you actually adopt behaviours from it's, several classes so beneath you. That's so extreme that no one would believe it. so extreme it. that essentially it says, <laughs> OK, an upper middle class person couldn't afford to do this, but, but an aristocrat could. OK? Now, if you look at that game of cycling to work when you work in a tech startup and you're quite rich and you've got an Oxbridge degree, that's patently a choice, not a compromise, and your status gains. For example, Tom Hanks could turn up at the Oscars in a Prius and it'd be a really, really cool thing to do. Because everybody knows Tom Hanks would be essentially carried in a paladin by 16 dancing girls if he wanted. But he's chosen this Prius. And everybody goes, that's nice, Tom. We love you. Okay. Now, if you work at Pizza Hut, if you turn up on a bike, people just assume you can't afford a car. It's a very interesting thing. Have you noticed how white cycle lanes are, right? I mean, it's like the front row of the Nuremberg Rally. Seriously, a cycle lane. I mean, it's got about the gender diversity, the ethnic diversity of a Leni Riefenstahl film. Because everybody who cycles is fucking white. Now, the reason for that, if you think about it, if you're first-generation Bengali or second-generation Bengali and you've moved to the UK and you've, you know, you've started from nothing and you've worked your way up, nobody in that position is going to go, one day I'm going to move to the UK and own a bicycle, 
right? Okay? From a certain narrative, it's a ridiculous thing to do. So, you know, that's one of the reasons why it's kind of smug white people who tend to do the cycling thing. Now, the problem of that is it's very good and it makes them feel great and they signal their care for polar bears, but it's not scalable. It only goes down to about 10% of people. The great thing about what Unilever and Procter and Gamble did in promoting cleanliness was they promoted it on the basis of things that everybody cared about and everybody wanted to signal. And is that possible with saving the planet? And I don't just mean the polar bears, I mean um, ourselves. Well, Is it scalable in a way that can convince us to change? Where does the change come from? Are we led by our noses? Does it come from the ground up? Uh, one of the things you do is you would ignore what economists say. I would like to see really, really expensive home video conferencing equipment. You know, nobody, as far as I know, if I said, OK, here's two grand, can you kit out my home so it's literally like a sound studio and I can do video conferencing from home, my inclination to do that, weirdly, would be very, very high. The problem with video conferencing, here's a thought experiment, OK? If we'd never had the internet, nobody'd invented it, Tim Berners-Lee never existed, but we'd invented video conferencing, Zoom, say, we'd think it was the wonder of the last 50 years. You know, it was something when I was a kid we always dreamed about because they had it on Star Trek. Wow, in the future we'll be doing this. And yet nobody did. And part of the problem is it came free with the internet. It was like, you know, it was like a crappy toy stapled to the front of a magazine. Now, making things really, really cheap and selling them in a very economically logical way on how cheap they are might be a terrible, terrible mistake, however economically logical it is. It's a wonderful thing. I gave a talk at an event called Sightgeist, and their job is very, very important. Now, it's saving the planet in a different way, not environmentally, but getting spectacles and glasses to people in the developing world who can't afford them or who can't get a hold of them. And I said, you might make a terrible mistake here, which is you get a load of economists in who say, make all the spectacles identical, except for the lenses, make them very, very cheap, or indeed give them away for free, which is what economic logic suggests. Don't do that. Charge for them as much as you can get. Make them come in limited editions. Why not make them sunglasses? Because sunglasses are much cooler than specs. Actually, get brands to actually put their brand names on them. Because the aspirations of people in the poorest billion are pretty similar to our own in terms of esteem and to be respected. One of the things is if you give them the spectacles for free, they don't look after them. That, I mean, they had discovered that already, OK? You want people to pay for them. And what you're talking about here is the opposite of reassuringly expensive. It's off-puttingly cheap. Exactly that, yeah. And you effectively stigmatise the people who wear them. Now, I was making an assertion there, and I thought, I'm being a bit bold here, going as a complete sort of contrarian to standard economic logic, which is the cheaper the better, the more efficient the manufacture, the better. But I still thought I was right, but I hadn't got any evidence. And I discovered that in Mexico they'd done something similar, and exactly that had happened. They'd actually put branding on, they'd had different coloured frames, they'd had them in different price bands as well, so you could buy you know, the slightly more expensive type or the cheaper type, and they'd actually taken off majorly. The terrible thing that happened with video conferencing, OK, is... Economic logic caused them to sell it as the cheap alternative to air travel. And therefore it became the poor man's British Airways, not the rich man's British Telecom. Now, had we known, what we should have done is said, first rule, OK, if you want to install video conferencing equipment in an office, you can only install it in the chief executive's office. 
You cannot put it in a basement room. You can't put it in a windowless room. You have to put it in the chief executive's office or the best meeting room in the building. I'm going to be very, very disappointed if we meet again in five years' time and you have not become a video conferencing billionaire from rebranding video conferencing. I'd like to go to one of those brands like Name or one of those premium English hi-fi brands. And I'd like to go to them and say, okay, we can have a bit of AI camera work so that actually the camera can follow people around as they walk. But I, I, I would like to get someone to produce you know, two or three grand's worth of really high-end video conferencing equipment. Let me finish by asking you this. You seem to have had enormous fun so far in your career, both as vice chairman of Ogilvy, but also doing the talks. You do TED, you're yep. doing the How-To Academy, right? You, you, you brand yourself very effectively. Yeah, I, it's, of course, it's career suicide because I can't actually change job now because if I did, someone might actually give me a job description, <laughs> which would be fatal. So I'm terrified of actually moving anywhere because then someone might have to come up with a job description. And my whole purpose has been, to be honest, by temperament, I'm an opportunist. I think all this business of sort of excessive planning is overdone. This wasn't going to be my question, but I have to ask it. Do you then not consciously brand yourself at all? Um, probably. I think we all do, though, don't we? I would have thought so. I certainly do. Now, very finally then, yeah. morality. To what extent has morality played a part in your career as an ad man? It's a very strange home life because my wife, as I said, is an Anglican clergywoman and I'm working in advertising and I'm obsessed with evolutionary psychology. So the joke I make about our children's upbringing is my wife provides the Jesus and I provide the Darwin. Um, uh, the, the ethical question is really interesting because there's this daft obsession with objectivity which suggests that to win, for example, through economic terms is is moral and worthy and you know adam smith would approve whereas to win through better marketing i.e apple okay is cheating now apple products were always pretty good but they were never objectively the highest specification thing you could buy what jobs did is he asked a different question not what can this product do he asked what does it feel like to use this product now, because we care about not about the things themselves. We care about what we perceive, and we care about perception. things according to. We also care according to context. So, depending on our frame of reference, something can be good or shit. We value the meaning of things rather than the things yeah. themselves, perhaps. So, if you think about it like a telescope, which has multiple lenses, okay. In physics, you have thing happens acting on other thing. Other thing does predictable thing. Everything maps onto everything else neatly. In human perception. Robert Trivers, friend of mine, one of the, uh, and uh, I, I mean, you know, friend is the wrong word because I, the guy is, uh, you know, I, I adulate the guy. He's one of the greatest biologists of the last century. Um, but um, he wrote a book called Deceit and Self-Deception. And the very simple point in that is there's a completely naive view of human evolution that suggests that evolution gave us sensory mechanisms that more and more closely approximated to depicting reality in our heads. Evolution doesn't give a shit about accuracy. It only cares about fitness. And if it helps evolution to distort our perception, to gain a tiny improvement in fitness, that's what it'll do, okay? So if you look at perception, I'll show it on the screen in the talk, our perception's highly optimised towards survival, not towards accuracy. Now, if you think of the telescope with multiple lenses, you, know, you have reality, then you probably have the context in which reality is perceived, the part of the reality to which our attention is disproportionately drawn. And there is nothing more important to us than 
what we are focusing and on then, at that moment. Exactly. Your words. This is Kahneman, Kahneman's words, actually. I mean, he won the Nobel Prize uh, for economics, and yet when asked what his most important insight in life was, he didn't cite the work that won him the Nobel Prize. He said nothing in life is as important as we think it is while we're thinking about it. So just to sum so up, advertising can direct yeah. attention to one thing or another thing. If you look at the, let's say the Queen Mary as a liner, okay. If you look at it in terms of speed, well, compared to a seven eight seven, it's shit. If you look at it in terms of luxuriousness and enjoyment, it's fantastic. Where does um, it fit into your morality? Um, my point is that actually you can manufacture meaning and context much, much more cheaply and with much less environmental damage than you can actually manufacture physical goods. And I'm just going to ask a question here, which is, given that people have, I think, the status-seeking needs they have, would it, to be honest, be best if you went out and bought a pair of sunglasses, Ray-Ban sunglasses, formerly the, the property of Roy Orbison, and made that your only pair of sunglasses for life? Now, you'd probably, I don't know, for a pair of the Orbs sunglasses, I guess you're paying, what, five, $8,000, would be my guess. And they would be cooler than any other sunglasses you could buy, I think it's fair to say. They'd probably last you for life. Now, that actually, if you think about it, that's the addition of value through meaning and narrative rather than the addition of value through manufacture. And it might be a perfectly fair case to make that actually we can manufacture meaning and significance and therefore the resulting emotions and behaviours much more effectively in environmental terms than uh, we can actually manufacture goods. Because there's, I mean, there's an issue here which is interesting, which is actually, apart from a bit of computing shit, no one's really invented anything for 50 years. I, I don't know that sounds the weirdest thing I could possibly say, okay? And no, there are, you know, there are incremental builds on existing things on, on, on the web and on, on, on computing. But if you look at my grandmother, who was born in 1893 or something and survived till the 1980s, what she saw in terms of new shit, by which I mean literally uh, car, television, radio, uh, washing machine, dishwasher. And in other words, extraordinary profusion of new things. But the truth of the matter is, if you took all three of us in the room and you multiplied our income by 10, what would you buy? You'd buy better versions of what you already have, right? But with the possible exception of net jets, which is the only thing I can think of, even a chauffeur, which would have been the answer, I think, before. To be honest, Uber Lux does that job pretty well. Anybody else's secret Uber Lux? Not me, Rory, okay. no, not right. me. Okay. Um, but I'm probably not in your salary range. No, 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 no. but, but um, it's a bit, bit more expensive than a black cab. Anyway, it's, it's, um, but actually, there isn't something other than property where we go, if only I had 10 times as much money, I'd buy one of those. You might have fancier holidays. You'd sit at the front of the plane rather than back or whatever it might be. But actually, weirdly, okay, in 1900, someone who has posed that question could probably list about 15 things they'd actually get. And your point Gramophone. is? Well, essentially, unless we start inventing some pretty clever shit pretty soon, the part of the economy that's going to be about meaning, essentially the perceptual component of the economy is going to become a lot more important than the manufacturing capability of it. Do you think about morality when you, yes. are, when you are advertising uh, two, two, stuff? Two, two very simple things, okay? 
Um, then two sentences, but no more because we have to finish. Okay. One, it isn't immoral to present something in a different light because our perception is coloured by context whether we like it or not. So the idea that this is smoke and mirrors is a mistake because if, some, if one person doesn't provide the smoke and mirrors, there'll be someone else's smoke and mirrors. There is no real objective perception. There's only context-sensitive perception, story-sensitive perception. Either you treat it with suspicion and go, it's essentially the, the artistry of snake oil salesmen, which it is, I'll freely admit that, or you say, actually, the way to improve the NHS is 80% by improving it in objective terms, 20% actually there's greater capacity for vast improvement in psychological terms and just how we perceive the same reality. So let me give you one very final story I'll end on, okay? If you go to A&E, which you shouldn't do anyway, and they shouldn't call it A&E, they should call it accident and emergency, because A&E sounds like a bloody retail option, you know. Should we go to B&Q or should we go to A&E, right? They should call it accident and emergency. When they started saying A&E, it was fake. Everyone wanted to go. Everybody wanted to go, right? Now, if you go to A&E and you're seen by a kind of triage nurse, then you've got to wait for another two hours to see the specialist, Okay. There is an inordinate difference in human happiness, depending on whether the triage nurse sends you back to the same waiting room you are in before or lets you go through to a new waiting room where you wait for the specialist. In the latter case, you're perfectly happy. In the former case, you're totally furious. Even though nothing about the objective nature of your treatment or the duration of wait has changed. Now, my view is you can either use tricks like this to make us all happier or you can piss them up the wall on the the higher principle of pretending people are objective when they're not. And this is like the button on the escalator, isn't it? Uh, the fake button on the uh, the, the elevator. Yeah. So the idea that it makes Sorry, you less angry. Sorry, the elevator, not the escalator. Yeah. The, the, the door closed button. Yeah. Indeed, most pedestrian crossings are the same. Sell us your book in half a sentence. The best thing about the book is not using it on other people. It's using it on yourself. Rory Sutherland, a pleasure to meet you. Thank you. Likewise, a joy. This week's podcast starred Rory Sutherland, whose new book, Alchemy, The Surprising Power of Ideas That Don't Make Sense, is out now. It was presented by Matthew Stadlin and produced by me, Vas Christodoulou. For more interviews with leading thinkers in politics, business and psychology, from Madeleine Albright to Steven Pinker, check out our YouTube channel or head over to howtoacademy.com for our upcoming London Live programme. Thanks for listening.